One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. Follow us on Twitter at Cooper McKim and at WY Public Radio with the hashtag Carbon Valley Pod. Hello, hello. I'm going to be trying to reach Jason. I haven't talked to him in a while. Maybe I can just get him cold calling. And forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at oh. this time. Bye. This is maybe the third or fourth time I've tried Jason in the past month. He didn't even pick up a call on my birthday. Not that he knew, but boy, if he did. It's June of 2019 now. This has been when, in my head, I thought XPRIZE teams would start coming to Wyoming. Because, on the schedule, it's when teams are allowed to get here. I'm sort of anxious, though, because I haven't heard from teams lately. And I have no idea when anyone is actually coming. So I keep calling Jason like a normal person to find out what's going on. Eventually, we connect, and I immediately confront him. It's been sort of hard to get in touch with you. Is that just from um, pumping up a schedule? I'm just kind of sick of you, actually. <laughs> I, I left a pause in there for, for, for effect. Unlike Jason, my stress levels are not in check. I honestly thought he was bailing on me in this whole podcast. I wrote long, gut-wrenching journal entries about this to despairing opera music. I called friends screaming, Who am I? What if this stranger I haven't told you about quits my podcast? In my head, dimensional energy is moving fast on the ground over in Ithaca, rolling over barriers in their metaphorical monster truck, getting closer to the Wyoming finish line. And I'm missing all of it. My whole idea in starting this series, Carbon Valley, was to follow companies like this on the ground. Watch the challenges of actually developing this tech that could make a difference for the climate. Make a difference in Wyoming. I explained to Jason, that's why I keep calling. I'm just trying to make sure I get everything I need. And I'm not even sure what that is all the time. You know, I think, yeah, we did, we did have a little bit of a gap in communication, but... but well, I think it was good to, good to let some time pass and let some things happen so that there's like new energy, new things happening. It turns out Jason has been very busy working to try to make this company a thing, working through the types of challenges I wanted to watch firsthand, making pitches, finding suppliers, things that might sound boring, but are actually fundamental to making this unique technology a thing. Jason says it's not like setting up any other company. Each step forward is breaking new ground. So like we're, we're building something from the ground up here. And so just trying to scale photocatalysis, it's, uh, it's, it's not like we can just go to the photocatalyst store. This is the beginning. It's like, it's like uh, I think at some point, you know, Henry Ford said, hey, I got this idea. You know, I want to take these, I want to make these, these horseless carriages. And, and uh, yeah, I know we're going to need roads and, gas stations and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, we're going to have to build the supply chain for that too. 
This is the equivalent of someone saying, hey, there's a sweet party happening over at JG's house. Ah, sorry you can't make it though. I'm bummed. The work he's doing sounds sweet. We're learning just how long it takes to to bring a technology like this to market. There's no shortcuts. I anticipate a lot's going to go not as planned. Challenges that Dimensional will have to face before bringing this scaled-up technology to Wyoming. All of this to create something that will help the climate. But what is that something? We know about the technology, but what about the product? In this episode, we find out. And it's pretty cool. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Carbon Valley. Following the race to develop an unlikely climate solution, I'm Cooper McKim. It's June of 2019. Another coal company went bankrupt, with more bad news coming down the pike. The urgency to expand the economy, prevent more Wyomingites from moving away, it's just increasing. Meanwhile, I dig deeper into Jason, who's on a parallel but separate path. In this series, it's possible I've put him on a pedestal. So I want to get to know this guy more personally. See how he ever went from skateboard guy to trying to crack the code for this potentially world-changing technology. If he can win the $7.5 million that could jumpstart their progress. I'm anxious to see teams start to work on all this tech in person. I'm worried though I may have expected too much for teams to be here soon. That I built this whole series on a flawed assumption. And now I'm stuck treading water. I reach out to the prize lead Marcus Extivore at the beginning of June, when I thought teams might start coming. We jump on the line and I ask, where are we at this point? I think it remains to be seen how many teams are actually going to be operating this summer. You know, they're all on their own schedules and and racing to try to figure out when they can land equipment uh, at the ITC. Many of those pieces of equipment coming from overseas, actually. Was the initial goal for for folks to to start up soon or was that pushed back a little bit officially? No, nothing has really changed. You know, the the only really the only real goal here is to collect your data by the deadline next year. Marcus mentions the deadline to have your data is actually not for a while. In February of next year, 2020. It's June now. Teams can actually get their data any time before then. To impatient me, that sounds like forever away. But Marcus says it's really not. It's absolutely not a lot of time, and people are definitely racing. My impatience may be unrealistic. Teams just can't come yet. They're still getting permitted, raising millions of dollars. Money and time, money and time. I hang up with Marcus, and for a few weeks, I go back to my daily responsibilities. Little did I know, everything is about to change. After the call, I'm not feeling too worried. I'm thinking, no big deal. Folks will get here when they get here. The announcement is still next February. I'll have the podcast done in a year. I don't have to go back to my bosses and explain the premise to the whole series is flawed. That no one's coming and this would actually take me several more years. That my idea of watching this tech unfold in person isn't actually going to happen anytime soon. Or maybe at all. And then... (sighs) 
the entire Carbon X Prize is delayed. It's um, it's huge. It's a game changer for us. It's good news that the timeline for X Prize has changed. Yes, of course, we're happy to have more time. Off the bat, I felt this rush of adrenaline to get in touch with all the finalists. Did they push for this? When are teams actually coming? Well, it turns out Jason is not the only finalist who's not ready to come to Wyoming anytime soon. Dr. Muhammad and Bobby, head of Carbon Capture Machine, says they really need money if they want to stay in this competition. Uh, it's, it's, it's great news. I, I, in fact, had suggested the exact period by which they delayed. All right. It sounds like the delay makes sense. Some teams need it, you know, or else. I'm just curious why it's coming up now. What's actually changed from episode three when teams first brought this issue up? When Carbon X Prize said, don't bank on a delay. The timeline is aggressive for a reason. It turns out the team CO2 Concrete has a similar question. Here's Gabe Falzone with the team. After that first meeting when we were there with you, basically everybody said we want it. And then they came out and said no. And then <laughs> they said yes. So that's our, my experience of it at least. It was very clear after that meeting that it would have helped everybody to have it. No one was like, oh, don't do it. So I reach out to the Carbon X Prize to understand what happened. It's only been a month since I spoke to Marcus for that interview you just heard. But there was a misunderstanding after that discussion and the competition ended up sending me an email response this time, rather than allowing an interview. I learned from Marcus the prize officially delayed four months. He tells me via email that the competition wanted more flexibility with the good weather. I also ask why the delay didn't happen sooner. He says they didn't want the schedule to be a deciding factor and whether a team could demonstrate in Wyoming. Plus, Marcus did say they'd keep an eye on the schedule back in February, so. The announcement of the winner was set to happen in less than a year. Now, it won't happen until the end of summer next year, 2020. This sounds like a relief for finalists, but for me, it's really not. Let me explain why I've been so impatient. The delay of the X Prize happened right before another major rough patch in coal country. And it feels like a reminder that this whole tech field just isn't quite ready yet, isn't providing tons of jobs. It's now July of 2019, and I find myself back in the car driving north through open prairie and big clouds heading back to Gillette for not great news. Since last episode, two more coal companies have filed for bankruptcy, both with several Wyoming mines. The filing of the company Black Jewel is already turning into a particularly ugly situation. I'm on my way to learn what happened. I hear there's an informational session for Black Jewel workers happening this morning. So I drive over to a local Gillette College building and make my way into a big room with blue chairs lined up facing a blank screen. About 30 guys and a couple women are waiting to hear what's going on with the company. I talk with one guy before things get started. He doesn't want to share his name. I kind of knew what was going on. 
when I took the job, but I was hoping it would go for a lot longer than what it has. I learn workers don't actually know if they're laid off. Some are holding out hope to return. And I want to welcome you all to our informational session. I know a lot of you have already Soon, the meeting starts. And the first matter of business is mentioning the guy who used to run this company, Jeff Hoops. It's easy to see he's not everyone's favorite. Um, as the majority of you know, Jeff Hoops was voted off the island. Um, the presentation explains how unemployment insurance works, what other jobs are available. I learned Gillette Workforce Center has seen lines well out the door, an average of 60 to 70 people inside the building all day. I talked to the center's Rick Mancheim. Every time this happens, and especially when you're caught off guard, it's especially hard. And we have people who have, you know, have health issues going on with family members, and then this happens, and it's, yeah, it's been real tough. A lot of tears last week, a lot of tears. On reporting trips like this, there's no real plan. After the session, it feels like I'm being pulled by a strong tide, carrying me from one home to a local library, to a Ruby Tuesdays, By day's end, the sun is starting to set. I end up in a small neighborhood with some houses, some trailers, and stop in front of a miner's home. I'm hanging out in the front yard where the grass is extra long. A portable hammock is strung between two trees, and cats are walking by. The sun casts a reddish-orange hue. A car pulls up, and I meet two other miners who are out of a job, a couple named Sean and Tandy. They ask for their last names not to be included. They're two of the hundreds of miners who lost their job. Here's Tandy. That's what's so heartbreaking is we just got married June 8th. So we indulged in our, in our honeymoon. And we come back thinking, okay, we'll just get more overtime. We'll pick up some extra shifts. We'll get back on our feet. And um, we, I found out, I rolled over at 6 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, checked my Facebook as I always do, and found out we filed bankruptcy and I met right away messaged my boss what is going on here Tandy and Sean got their last paycheck but it didn't even cash think about that now the newlyweds are relying on people around them to help pick up groceries and make ends meet Sean's trying to mow lawns but they need something more they might have to leave Gillette to get it I know it's an option I know we don't want to. We love this community, you know. Um, my, our son has been raised in this Church. community. Church, schools. You know, he's got lifetime friends. It'd be hard to make that decision to leave. It really would. Soon, I head back home to Laramie. On the long drive, I'm replaying conversations I just had. Nearly everyone I spoke to didn't have a firm answer to, are you going to stick around? Personally, that's hard to imagine. I've never had to face a decision like that. It feels natural at moments like this to wonder why this is happening. What could have stopped it? What can still be a long-term solution to allow folks like Sean and Tandy to stay if they want to? On one hand, there are those looking to build a carbon valley extend coal's life through a handful of new businesses, perhaps by turning the resource into new products, or by shipping it abroad. Carbon capture, of course, is part of that too. The urgency to build up aspects of this carbon valley are only increasing. To have all this pay dividends 
before too many coal plants shut down. The X-Prize was just an early piece of this Carbon Valley vision, but now there are a bunch of new dominoes set up too. Governor Mark Gordon recently went to the White House to talk with President Trump about supporting coal and carbon capture. The University of Wyoming partnered with a clean coal test facility. Wyoming is suing Washington in an attempt to open coal ports and partnering with Japan in carbon research. The U.S. Senate moved forward with a bill to push CCUS research and development, sponsored by a Wyoming senator. The Fuset Act also funds research, such as the type of research occurring right here at the Integrated Test Center for carbon utilization as well as direct air capture. Still in the car, on my way home to Laramie, I think about payoff. Wyoming state and federal leaders have been banging the drum for carbon capture as a piece of the Carbon Valley vision for years now with a lot of money invested, all towards seeing the life of coal extended. But despite all these efforts, coal production continues to decline. Coal plants are still closing. I reach out later to one of Wyoming's drivers of CCUS, Jason Baker, to talk about payoff. He says, just because we've been talking about it for a few years, doesn't mean there will be results yet. You know, you always want to see things happen quickly and uh, have that aha moment. But I also think, you know, managing expectations and being realistic about what it takes. My thought, though, it's hard to tell people, wait and see, this will pay off, when folks are having to make the decision to leave this place right now. Obviously, it's a long-term thing, but the jobs themselves, that's a short-term thing. So I think that's where some of the dissonance comes from. Yeah, no, I I, I think you're right. President Reagan had a... uh, good line that says a recession is when your neighbor loses their job a depression is when you lose yours so what's happening across the industry is very it has has a huge impact the payoff of jobs it's not going to be immediate and uh, nor do i think we're ever going to be back to 480 million tons but what can we do to at least slow that slide Jason Baker says he has optimism that CCUS will still pay off for coal country. By preserving coal, it'll provide jobs, provide economic revenue. That, it's still some years away though. From other state and local leaders, I hear the clock is ticking. We gotta make this work before too many coal plants shut down. The timeline for this effort I heard from several folks before 2030. So yeah, the race is on. For now, Baker still sees it as a worthy bet. When you look at where the state of Wyoming does make its money and and bring in tax revenue, nothing compares to coal and oil and gas jobs. And you know, maybe that's a criticism of the at the tax structure that the state has set up, and I think that's a a conversation for another day. we heard last episode, though, many others in this state want to have that conversation now. New research just came out with the headline, Fiscal Collapse of Coal Towns Increasingly Likely. Remember Shannon Anderson, the attorney from last episode. Rather than working to extend coal's life through a carbon valley or otherwise, she'd prefer to spend the time and money to build up other industries, see more tourism, 
Get deeper into local meat processing, local foods, blockchain, build up renewables. Engage in transition work, as some Appalachian states facing similar challenges have already begun to do. Again, there just needs to be a recognition that Wyoming's economy will look different. It will be more decentralized. As coal country once again reaches a flashpoint, these discussions are still underway. And that's why I'm anxious to see this tech on the ground. Ask questions about what exactly it'll take for this type of technology to do well. What Wyoming has going for it or not going for it. But that won't happen for a while now. Without that, I stay in touch with Jason Selfie, who was brought in through the XPRIZE, one effort to jumpstart this carbon valley, to help speed up this tech in time to help coal. I haven't actually talked to Jason much lately. He's been stuck in meetings, traveling around and trying to raise money, making frustrating elevator-style pitches that he's not a fan of. I learn all this next time we connect, and I ask him a question I've probably asked like 40 times now. Are you nervous before these meetings? You know, I mean, I'm basically nervous before any given interview, even though I've done it for five years. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. It's a you know, it's like a, if you ask me before the meeting, are you nervous? I would con like consciously, I would say no. But I think if you were to like take some measurements of my on my like endocrine system to scope out my adrenals, see what like how I'm performing biometrically, I think you'd probably see elevations <laughs> in certain parameters. But, you know... It's the nerdiest way to say that. And after, yeah, I'm, I can be a geek. <laughs> I just don't get... Don't there's so many that, things, yeah. like, I've been I've been in so many, like, life-threatening situations that, that have gotten me haired out. I think, like, talking to a person just doesn't, like, trigger that saber-toothed tiger chasing me down... <laughs> kind is that of fear. life life threatening situations? Yeah. Name one. Um, I think the the one of the hairiest one of the hairiest sailing moments. Actually, we weren't even that far offshore. We were just coming up from uh, mainland Mexico, and right around middle of Baja Peninsula, we just hit some pretty heavy weather. Like it was pretty glassy, barely any wind. And, and then within 60 miles, just the shit hit the fan. Already, I hear something in Jason's voice change. It is now story time. Just the worst combination of seas, just super, super steep. Not that giant necessarily, but pretty, pretty steep and chaotic. The boat just felt like it was going to explode. We were just like launching off the backs of waves. We had a barely any sail area up and we were going seven, eight knots upwind. They decided to bail, stop the journey, and find safety. You know, we could see features along the coast that would make sense to kind of tuck into, but there weren't necessarily towns there. 
So they took a risk and sailed into this little cove, tucked in behind a big land feature. It was totally the right call. And as we were coming in, it was pretty magical. The waves pretty well subsided. It was just kind of a lot of rolling, rolling seas. But the wind was completely sheltered in this spot. And as we were going in, the bioluminescence started to really turn on and a whole bunch of sea lions were tracking along with us and they looked like these dancing pixies next to the boat and just glowing and illuminated in the bioluminescence as they disturbed the water. The story is putting me inside one of those perfect Lord of the Rings or Legend of Zelda landscapes, where you get lost in this perfect vista. It's starting to feel like a window into what Jason means when he talks about preserving the climate, why he wants this company in Dimensional to succeed. It was a moment where, or, or several hours, you know, where, you know, something could have broke and um, it could have easily been a, a much hairier situation. Yeah, you know, remember that time I was base jumping off the Eiffel Tower, then rocket launched into space? When I'm 50, my stories are probably going to be more like, hey kids, my hamster once got loose, and then I found it. I've been running around talking to people about the decline of coal. People telling me they're worried Gillette will become a ghost town. Meanwhile, I can barely hold it together, trying to avoid thinking about the death of the person who would have helped me cope with life, my dad. And then I'm hearing another crazy Jason story about this life or death sailing situation, and I'm just feeling like Jason is so disconnected from this world. For Jason, his drive to make dimensional energy work isn't about building a carbon valley. It's about preserving beautiful landscapes for future generations. The timeline, the payoff for making CCUS work is just different for him than it is for Wyoming leaders. I have to remind myself how Jason or the Carbon X Prize ever became a piece of this Carbon Valley vision. I think back to what Governor Meade hoped for with this competition. Let's say that one of the competitors or several of the teams find real solutions, find a great utilization of CO2 flue gas. The people that want to produce that product, whatever it may be, they're going to go to the places where flue gas is available. And that is in places like uh, Wyoming, like Campbell County, uh, like the Dry Fork Station. If one day Jason's company did make good money, they could theoretically set up next to a coal plant, offset its cost by paying for emissions, or show others it's possible. By now, though, I've learned Dimensional doesn't need coal's emissions. All right. We've talked plenty about Wyoming's motivation to see this tech succeed and fast. Hashtag Carbon Valley. I'm fascinated, though, by Jason's pursuit of this technology, something he one day started reading about while in a government job, got excited, and saw carbon tech as a way to preserve beautiful landscapes across the earth. Five episodes in, I also just feel more drawn to Jason than I expected to. We get along really well. He doesn't mind my humor. I enjoy his tangents. I feel like Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby, seeing the cool, successful guy across the way in his big mansion throwing parties. But like in the book, 
there's more to Jay Gatsby than meets the eye. So I want to get past putting him on this pedestal and look at this leader more critically as someone who's taking on a massive challenge of scaling up a technology in a field where so few companies even have customers, help the climate, and maybe win 7.5 million bucks. When we come back, we have a huge twist. We find out Jason is made of carbon. I want to recommend another show I think you'll love. Solvable is a weekly podcast where host Ronald Young Jr. asks how we can find solutions to some of the biggest issues of our time. You'll hear David Baltimore on AIDS, Sal Khan on basic education, and Roseanne Haggerty on homelessness. Recent episodes have focused on global hunger, our addiction to fossil fuels, eco-friendly transportation, and body positivity. These are the problems that seem too big or too complicated to fix. But in the hands of the right people, activists, scientists, policymakers, and politicians at the top of their fields, there are ways to solve them. That's the hopeful message of Solvable. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The coal industry is having a really bad summer. Some want to move on from the resource. Others want to double down, move fast to advance this Carbon Valley vision, make carbon capture work before time runs out and all the coal plants buying Wyoming coal retire. Jason Salfi, meanwhile, has found himself as an unlikely middleman, pursuing this tech for other reasons. And honestly, his pursuit isn't a guaranteed success either. I want to know if he can do it, to move past my softball questions and start taking a more critical eye to this person with some impressive confidence in scaling up a technology that doesn't really exist on a broad scale. What, did the thought ever cross your mind that it might not, you might not get the commercialization? The, the thought never crossed my mind that we would not commercialize this technology. I want to know, can Jason actually bring this tech to the real world? And if he does, how it'll help the climate? Or am I falling for something, like an absolute idiot? Let's start with the first question. Who is this guy? And luckily, Jason is game to let me investigate. Is there anyone else who was there at the beginning who you didn't ostracize and demean? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people around. I don't know who would be the best, but I could give that some thought. Jason grew up in upstate New York, right when the Love Canal environmental catastrophe was happening. His role model was Spock from Star Trek. At 22, he got his captain's license and ran boats around the Caribbean and Pacific Ocean, which sounds sweet to me. He turned scrap wood from the boats into these 70s-style skateboard cruisers. Soon, he started this company, Comet Skateboards, focused on green manufacturing using sustainably harvested wood, water-based inks. Here's Jason's wife, Katie Selfie. But he was also always thinking about the future, and the future meaning what is the planet going to be like for if he has a child and you know, future generations. I also connect with a bunch of the old Comet skaters and employees. I want to learn how the company was run, what it was like, if it was too legit to quit, or not quite legit enough. 
Soon, I set up a bunch of Zoom calls and talked with a collection of guys who all turned out to be white dudes, not much older than me, with definite skater vibes. One guy has a mustache and flat top hat. Another, a shaggy beard, cargo vest, and pink earbuds. Turns out there's some precedent to people who look like me thinking Jason is a cool dude. He was doing things differently. I think he had a much bigger picture than just Comet and skateboarding, but he also loved the action of skateboarding, especially the punk rock style of it, the freedom of it. I just remember, like, they introduced me kind of to, like, organic food eating and all this kind of clean, sustainable way of living. Like, you could take all those boards, all that magic, and put it under somebody else, and it, it won't fly. It just won't be rad because it's, it's just that dude. After talking to all these guys, an image begins to come together of what this era looked like. A cinematic time of skating, working hard, and hanging out. Jason as a laid-back, passionate leader, jumping fences to skate in empty pools, carving down huge hills, attracting famous photographers to projects. It was successful, a movement. I want to know the difficulties, though, the struggles of Jason to get a more well-rounded idea of this person, and possibly his current company. It turns out it wasn't all easygoing at Comet. You could see increasingly he was going gray from getting stressed out, from working so many long, hard hours and just like carbon fiber stacked on his arm from cutting. Man, he lived at that warehouse practically. He was very easygoing for how hard he was working. But you could you could see that he was getting like stressed out from just I don't know working ten twelve hour days fourteen hour days every day. Part of that I learned was because the company was growing super fast. Jason suddenly had a bunch of employees under him. He was having to make hard decisions, make boards that would actually sell. The responsibilities were piling up. Yeah, there was always a massive list, and they were always behind playing catch up. And Never and, name your company after a roller coaster. Yeah, it literally. <laughs> and I mean, just the nature of the market and, you know, and Jason's first company. So there were lots of kind of headaches and fires to put out and... Hard lessons learned. Yeah. I think cracking this facade of who Jason is is helpful for me. Learning that no one is perfect and that Jason is probably still struggling to maintain the calm that he exudes. While there is intense praise for Jason, I push harder to hear what the challenges were. I know the company had its ups and downs. What was his role in all that? You know, I think, I think if anything, he really only built bridges and, you know, strengthened the people around him. Um, but at the cost of maybe, you know, the brand shifting too much or there not being so much of a cohesive image or a structure to it. You know, so it's hard to say. I think, I think it worked for what we were doing at the time. If I were to go back, you know, maybe a little bit more structure would have been good. I hear there were hard times with a co-founder of the company, to the point of, oh, don't even mention this guy's name. Also, that Jason had a ton on his plate. Okay, like this dude's like working hard, he's killing it, maybe he's not killing it, finances aren't that good, he's not that organized, but like shit's really getting done and weird shit's happening all over the place and exciting partnerships that you never could imagine are happening and you're just like, how is this dude doing it, you know? 
I mean, in my take, like Jason kind of sucks with managing money. He always has like, it, it's kind of like get him out the money and he's like the most successful person. But at the same time, he's been good at it. Like we haven't gone bankrupt, you know what I mean? So there's something to be said there, I think. Uh, he was always good about being like pretty real about it. Like if we couldn't pay someone or couldn't pay me or was like going to have to cut the shit down, he'd call you and tell you why and, and how that was going to play out. But yeah, there was some like animosity there, a little bit of a split up. Like there's a couple people who kind of left on bad terms because of the way maybe they were paid out or weren't paid out or the way they were treated at those times. I go to Jason next and ask about some of these challenges with Comet. Oh man, that business almost killed me so many times. I simply did not know how to delegate you you need to layer in some management and that stuck with me jason and i talk about how hard this period was he says he learned a ton jason's wife katie agrees saying he's mentored other companies now learned to manage his time better he's reflective focused on self-care and improving his weaknesses when jason decided to head up dimensional though katie still had some anxiety while Jason may not feel much stress, she still does. So when Dimensional Energy started, I was definitely nervous. And it was pretty soon after exiting Comet. And so I felt very little bit of PTSD, I would honestly say. <laughs> and so we had a lot of conversations about it. I asked Jason about the money-related stuff, too, because that sounds kind of intense. Jason says Comet just didn't have a money-making focus, and because of that, they struggled with income sometimes. He wanted it to be a movement driver, energy creator. But he learned through Comet the best way to impact an industry is through wild and successful sales growth, his current plan with Dimensional. Everything we've been talking about, I realize, has been business Jason. But what about the human Jason? We've heard such personal struggles in this series. And so far, Jason's kind of been a boss. I wonder if he can empathize with the struggles miners face in Wyoming as jobs disappear, or with me front-loading my life with work after just losing someone so important. Well, it's definitely an uncomfortable, you know, subject to to pivot to in the middle of what, what we've been talking about. But he does open up, and it becomes clear that a particular hardship has been defining in his life. Jason's little brother, Matt, struggled with addiction for most of his life. And in 2012, it came to a head. Katie and I were just, you know, getting started with our own family, and yet there was this, you know, deep need for intervention and an and utter like pathetic lack of understanding about, you know, the, the problem. And the, what, what unfolded was just really difficult for, for everybody, uh, of course, including my, my brother. We're, you know, it's just, it was a devastating process and culminated in him passing away in 2012. Jason's surprised to hear himself open up at all. He says he was ready to shut down the whole conversation this experience was defining for Jason. He says it made him more reflective, made him put a high value on self-care. Every day, he meditates, exercises. 
they taught him that self-care comes with hard, intentional work. The practice, you know, which I'm, which I'm speaking of, like, allows me to hold space for bigger things like solving climate change or having a deeper discussion with somebody, you know, who I'm in relationship with. I imagine, too, that this is an ongoing journey for Jason. It sounds like he's picked up tools to fight his inner demons. But like everyone, he's still working on it. It's nice to learn about some of the events that have made this person who he is. And to the question, does Jason care what's happening in Wyoming? Of course. He feels empathy for communities facing collapse, feels no judgment towards anyone in the industry, and imagines that not only Gillette, but Wyoming can be part of building a new clean energy economy. Let's switch gears for a second, away from Jason, much to his pleasure, I'm sure, onto his technology. How exactly will it be world-changing? Coming from a Wyoming perspective, I've learned it's very important to ask how carbon capture is expected to help the climate. That carbon capture in any form doesn't just equal helping the climate. One investor with a prime impact fund, Joanna Wolfson, explains. I have what might be a partially unpopular uh, opinion or response to that, which is that I do think carbon to value is a component of our effort to combat climate change. And for us at Prime, we are likely only going to move forward. We are definitely only going to move forward if a company is truly carbon negative. And just to say that a lot of carbon to value companies aren't. So what about dimensional? Obviously, the goal is to help the climate. So how would that actually happen? It turns out to be kind of exciting. Before I get to the product, here's a quick reminder of Dimensional's technology that they're looking to scale up through the XPRIZE. It's basically a robotic flower. Their platform of tech uses the power of the sun, eats up carbon dioxide, gets sloshed around with chemicals. There's a few more steps. Then you've got a greener form of fuel called synthetic gas. I ask him though, how will this really help the climate on any sizable scale? For the first time, I learn about the product in all this. They're looking to use their technology to create a greener fuel for airplanes, a notoriously polluting industry. Alternatives to flying long distances are scarce in the extreme, and the potential to fly in a greener way is severely limited. Newer planes are more fuel efficient, but improvements so far aren't keeping pace with passenger growth. Trying to address this industry is a big goal. Commercial aviation accounted for more than 2% of all human-induced carbon dioxide emissions in recent years. A growing number of individuals are choosing not to fly at all as a step towards reducing their carbon footprint. Organizations have called for a carbon tax, alternative forms of transport. It turns out that making airplanes green is really hard. There are no Toyota Priuses in the sky quite yet. So Dimensional Energy has decided to try and tackle this huge problem. And so you've got an industry that emits a billion tons of carbon dioxide a year with no way of electrification in the near future. So what I see is us coming in with our solution, doing sunlight-driven CO2 to fuels, whereby we eventually get to the point where there's no more fossil fuels being extracted for aviation, and we lock up that billion tons into a circular fuel. The basic idea Dimensional would reduce carbon dioxide emissions from, say, a power plant or concrete plant 
it would be powered by renewables and then create a fuel that emits less than, say, petroleum. We're still going to be emitting carbon dioxide from airplanes as they combust that fuel, but we suck it right back in and put it back into use again. So you've got a use cycle instead of a linear take-make-waste cycle. From the beginning of the series, Jason's tech has always sounded cool, but it also felt theoretical. Now there's something concrete to hold on to. This is a company trying to scale up and make a cleaner liquid fuel to overcome a major challenge, making airplanes more climate friendly. It's insanely ambitious, but Jason has hope. Actually, you know, me saying, I think we can make our first significant sale in, you know, and be really, really running on all cylinders within the next 10 years. I think we can do it in nine. I know I've jumped like 20 metaphors, but after hearing all this, I'm going to try one more. I think Jason kind of embodies carbon capture. He's idealistic, there's promise, he's wacky, but there are question marks. We've answered a lot of them this episode, but a big one remains. How is this ambitious technology actually coming together on the ground in Ithaca? Are they on track to have this technology scaled up in time for the X Prize? If not, what are the big hurdles that they still have to face? I thought I could ask these questions when the team got here in Wyoming. But with the competition's delay, I decided to make a totally normal decision for a local public radio reporter. I'm going to jump on one of those big gas gasoline planes and fly across the country to watch Dimensional Energy in action. Watch firsthand how one startup is trying to change a whole industry. Next episode, I travel to Ithaca, New York, to see if Dimensional is ready to come out to Wyoming. We've already we've already got our tech dialed in for X Prize. Mm-hmm. Um, anything we do now will just make it better. Quickly, though, I learned there are still a lot of challenges ahead. It's a stressful environment in that there's always a shortness of money. There's always a shortness of manpower because there's a shortness of money. The show is produced by Noah Greenspan and me, Cooper McKim. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Aaron Jones and Melody Edwards helped with story editing. And we had production assistance from Micah Schweitzer and Chet Lewis. Our theme music is by Mark Juliana. The music you hear now is by Vegas. Find other credits online at carbonvalleypodcast.org. Carbon Valley is a production of Wyoming Public Media. He definitely has a quiet well, you can't see magnetism. You can't hear it. You can somewhat feel it. And that's definitely him. He's very quiet and humble and like just pulls you in in a way. If you like what you're hearing, and even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover Carbon Valley so we can keep bringing you stories about one state's economic future. 